we've been now for a few weeks in this great message that Jesus gave and Matthew records that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to finish up chapter 5 today and not go further because I think it's quite enough for us to talk about just to finish chapter 5 from where we begin now at verse 27. But we just want to remind ourselves briefly of the structure of the Sermon on the Mount to this point. Jesus began by describing the character of those who would live in his kingdom, the character of kingdom citizens, you could say. And that section we commonly call the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, Jesus described the kind of character that the people who follow him and are citizens of his kingdom should have. They would have a poverty of spirit. They would mourn over their sin. They they would um, be meek. They would seek after righteousness. They would be merciful. They would have a purity of heart. They would be peacemakers. And then for the final beatitude, he reminds us of how the world does and would receive such people. It would persecute them. And then he told people that they should live as salt and as light and that they should uh, pursue uh, this condition in the world of being a a, a beacon, a city set on a hill, as Jesus used the figure there in verses 13 through 16. Then Jesus sort of shifted his focus, beginning at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, and started speaking about his own relationship to the law. And then he spoke about the disciples' relationship with the law. And then starting at verse 21, which we began with the last time we were together, Jesus began on an extended discussion about the true interpretation of the law. But we need to remind ourselves, Jesus is not setting himself in opposition to the law of Moses. No, it's not as if Jesus is having a debate with the law of Moses. Jesus is having a debate or a controversy with false interpretations of the law of Moses. This is very important for us to make the distinction, right? Because there are many people who assume that they're rejecting the word of God when in fact they're rejecting the tradition of man. And the word of God can be very different than the tradition of man. And so first, in verses 21 and 22, Jesus spoke about the law against murder. And then after that, Jesus spoke about the urgency to get things right between you and your neighbor and problem personal relationships. He he talks about all of that up until verse 26, where now we begin, starting at verse 27, where Jesus again is going to talk about the law and how they misunderstood it. So starting now at verse 27. You have heard it said, excuse me, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The first thing I want you to notice is the structure of what Jesus is speaking, because it's a familiar structure from what we saw before in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins by calling attention to what they have heard. And what did they hear? What did they hear from their rabbis, from their teachers in the synagogues? They heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And of course that's true. You shall not commit adultery. But Jesus here takes it a step further when he says, But I say to you, again, I just want you to appreciate 
what I might call the audacity of what Jesus says right there. He's so bold to say, let me add something to this. Let me help you to understand this. He's not quoting an obscure rabbi. He's not referring to some tradition. Jesus here is speaking with great authority. And he says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, of course, it was taught in Jesus' day and truthfully taught that adultery itself was wrong. But unfortunately, they only applied that law to the action of adultery, which is, of course, is wrong. And they did not apply it to the heart of adultery. And that's why Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus explains that it is possible to commit adultery, just as he already spoke about previously about murder. It's possible for us to commit these sins in our heart or in our mind. And this sin, the sin of adultery in the heart, is also condemned by the command against adultery. It's the same thing with murder, as we saw the last time we were together. When Jesus explained it to us accurately, he says, the command against murder does not only prohibit the act of murder. Of course it prohibits the act, but not only. It also speaks to the heart of murder. And the same thing with the command about adultery. The command against adultery not only condemns the act of adultery, but also the heart of adultery. But notice how Jesus stated this. It's very significant. He used the words, whoever looks at a woman. And with that, he located the origin of lust back to the eyes. And this is a true statement, a true observation. It's according to to such statements in the Bible, such as Job chapter 31, verse 1. Do you remember what Job said there? He said, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I would not look upon a young maiden and sin against God. I mean, there, Job, just like Jesus, of course, many thousands of years after Job, is locating the origin of lust in the eyes. But it's also true according to life experience. We know this, don't we? That the gateway, that the entry point for lust is primarily the eyes. However, it's very important for us to understand that Jesus is not saying that the act of adultery and adultery in the heart are the same thing. It's very important for us to understand this. More than a few people have been deceived at this very point, and they say something like this, I have already committed adultery in my heart, What's the harm in going on and committing the act itself? Now listen, that is a certain diabolical, satanic logic to it, is it not? But it makes a critical error. Jesus was not saying that adultery in the heart was just as bad as adultery in practice. He was saying that they were both sin and that they were both addressed by the command, you shall not commit adultery. Matter of fact, The act of adultery is far worse than adultery in the heart. And Jesus' point was not to say that they were the same thing, but to say that they were both sin and both prohibited by the command against adultery. You think about it. 
Some people only keep themselves from adultery because they're afraid. They're afraid to get caught. And in their heart, they commit adultery every day. Now listen, it's a good thing that they're kept from the act of adultery. That's a good thing and not a bad thing. But it is a bad thing that their heart is filled with adultery. Now this principle applies to much more than just the idea of men looking at women. Although, of course, it needs to be applied to that, right? And unfortunately, modern society and technology has put lustful images in front of the eyes of people far more effectively, far more uh, pervasively than ever before. I don't have to tell you what a problem pornography is in our world today. What a multi-billion euro industry or dollar industry it is in the world today. And what an absolute, captivating hold pornography has on the hearts and minds of many people. Now, I don't have to tell you that. You know that. What we need to understand is that the law of God speaks about this. But it does apply to much more than just men looking at women. It also applies to anything that we can covet with our eye or our mind. You look at something and you covet it. And that coveting just in the heart is condemned by the scriptures as well. You know, since Jesus considered adultery in the heart to be a sin, it's very interesting. It proves to us that what we think about and what we allow our heart to rest upon is based on choice, right? Isn't sin a choice? Don't you choose to commit a sin? Therefore, what Jesus is talking about, that, that lustful look, that adultery in the heart, that is a choice that a person makes. And many people think that they have no choice and therefore no responsibility for what they think about. But this contradicts the clear teaching of Jesus. You are responsible for what you allow your mind to be set upon. Now, we may not be able to control passing thoughts or feelings, but we certainly do decide where our heart and where our minds will rest. I think it was Martin Luther, but who knows, it could have been somebody else as well who made the, the famous statement. They, they made this distinction between temptation and lust. They say, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. Right? And that's the difference. It's one thing to have a passing thought or a passing alluring image. It's one thing for your eyes to see something and then to look away. It's an entirely other thing to choose to allow your mind to rest upon something, to choose to allow your eyes to rest upon something. Think about the power of imagination. When you think about it, this is an impressive and special gift from God. As far as we know, that is something that man does not share with any of the animal creatures, right? This is something that makes man unique and made in the image of God. As far as we know, dogs or chimpanzees or giraffes, 
don't have imagination. Imagination is a gift from God and a powerful tool. But if the imagination is fed dirt through the eyes, then the imagination will be dirty. And you can say all sin, especially sexual sin, begins with imagination. Therefore, what we allow our eyes to look upon and what we allow our imagination to be fed is of very, very great importance if we will pursue the kingdom of God. And so we're not talking about an involuntary thought that passes through your mind. We're not talking about something that passes before your eyes, but you choose to let your eyes bounce off of that thing and look at something else. We're talking about something that you choose to look upon, that you choose to think about. Do do you consider that carefully? That God holds you and I responsible for what we allow our minds to rest upon. You know, I, I think of the man who allows his mind to drift and for many, you know, minutes out of the day, he allows himself the delicious fantasy, what if I were a millionaire and won the lottery? Oh, how wonderful my life would be. And I would do this and I would do that and I would be rich and everybody would love me and on and on and on and on and on. Look, it, it, it's sin. Or the woman who allows her mind to escape in some romantic fantasy from the day where she thinks of her prince in shining armor coming along and sweeping her off her feet and she loses herself and she just indulges the dream on and on and on. Listen, God holds us responsible for what we allow our minds to rest upon. Now when I say these words and convict my own heart, let me tell you, with them, it makes me feel this is a very hard commandment. Do you not feel this? But then I consider something else. That Jesus was tempted in all ways, was he not? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us this. And he endured these temptations that we face as well, and he did not yield to them. Jesus was able to look at a woman and see her as more than an object for his gratification. And what was the the power of Jesus within this? Well, it was the power of a pure love. He could look upon a woman and see that woman as a daughter or a sister or, or, or as a sacred object of God worthy of respect. And so when I feel that these commands are very hard, and might I say these are hard commands, what it should do is remind us very strongly that Jesus endured such temptations as well. Now, seeing that these commands are so strenuous, so hard, if you want to say that, we need to have a certain attitude in our battle against sin, and that's what Jesus talks about in the next two verses, 29 through 30. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Here Jesus was using very strong figures of speech, and we must say he did not speak literally. Sadly, some people have taken this so. And they have mutilated themselves in mistaken efforts in the pursuit of holiness. And you'll read news reports of this from time to time. I do. Every couple years, I'll see a little report in the news about a man who gouged out his own eye or or, or cut off his own hand or emasculated himself because he felt he was commanded to by Jesus in this passage. One famous example of this was an early Christian named Origen. He castrated himself based on the principle in this passage. You say, well, how do you know that Jesus isn't speaking literally? I'll tell you how we know. The problem with the literal interpretation of this is that it does not go far enough. Even if you did cut off your hand or gouge out your eye, you have another hand and another eye to sin with. And even if you were to remove those, So you have no hands and no eyes. You can still sin in the way that Jesus just described in the previous verses. You can still commit sin in your heart and in your mind. You see, mutilation doesn't serve the purpose. It might prevent the outward act. But Jesus is telling us that it's not just the act that needs to be addressed, but the sinful desire itself. But don't miss the point here. Jesus says that it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus simply stressed the point that one must be willing to sacrifice in order to be obedient. If part of our life is given over to sin, we must be convinced that it is more profitable, it is better for us to allow that part of our life to die than to condemn our whole life. Listen, this is the one thing that many people are unwilling to do. And this is why they remain trapped in their sins or never come to Jesus in the first place because they never get beyond a vague wish that their life was better. This is the place many people find themselves. It's very important for us to say a vague wish to be better is not good enough. I need to say I'm willing to let some things in my life die in order to follow God. If you want to connect this and make a connecting point between what went before this and what comes after this, what comes before this is the law concerning adultery, and Jesus speaks about it. What comes after this is the law concerning divorce, and Jesus. And, and let me make a link between these two with these, this attitude of, of the seriousness of the battle against sin. In my time as a pastor... I've had the responsibility of counseling people who have been unfaithful in their marriage. And I I have on a few occasions counseled men or women who will sit and they're being unfaithful in their marriage. And this is what they'll say to me. They'll say, speaking of the other woman or the other man, they'll say, but I love them. And my response to them is very simply, so what? So what if you love them? Did not Jesus tell us 
That to obey him and to battle against sin would mean that we would have to die to certain things that we loved very much? Of course it does. Your love for that forbidden person or thing may be very real. I'm not questioning the reality of your love for that person or thing at all. Not one bit. I'm just saying it's irrelevant. Could you imagine Jesus saying these words about the importance that we should have such a serious mindset in the battle against sin that it could only be related to cutting off a a hand or gouging out an eye and then saying, but Jesus, I love her. What would he say? Cut it off. Cut it off. Gouge it out. Make a separation. And this is the mindset that's essential. Every once in a while in doing evangelism, I've come across the, the situation where you're talking to a person and, and you're talking to them about, about um, uh, you know, being a Christian and giving their life to Jesus Christ and, and, and responding to the gospel and what Jesus did for them on the cross. And you're explaining all this to them and, and, and they seem receptive and they seem open. And actually, I'm going to share a story that works a little bit better in American context, but I think you'll understand it. And, and then the person will ask, well, um, uh, can I still drink beer? And on the one hand, I want to say, well, of course. There's no direct scriptural command that says thou shalt not drink beer. The Bible definitely commands against drunkenness, and that's an absolute command, and you can't be... Part of me wants to say that, but part of me wants to say, you will give up the kingdom of God based on whether or not you can have a beer in it? Is this what you're determining this on? Eternal life with Jesus Christ, but only if I can enjoy a beer with it as well. And look, whether or not you can or can't, that's an entirely separate issue. But you should be willing to say, I would cut it all off for the sake of following Jesus Christ. That's the mentality that Jesus is beginning across to us here. Verses 31 and 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give him a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, Jesus begins with the statement, it has been said. And he explains to them what the popular rabbinic teaching was in the synagogues or in the popular culture of the day. And the popular teaching was what? Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, in Jesus' day, many people interpreted Deuteronomy 24.1, which is the passage in the Old Testament that gives permission for divorce. It's the passage in the Mosaic Law that allows a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce, and then the marriage is over. They interpreted that command because actually what it says in Deuteronomy 24.1 is that if a man finds uncleanness in his wife, he can give her a certificate of divorce and he can be divorced from her. Well, there's a lot weighing on that one word, uncleanness, right? What is uncleanness? Now, there were two general schools of thought in Jesus' day. The, the one school of thought, basically around the thinking of a rabbi named Shammai, 
he said that uncleanness is restricted to sexual um, sin. And sexual sin that was proven by witnesses, not just the accusation of it. So in other words, if the wife had been sexually unfaithful, that was uncleanness, and then the husband could give her a, a certificate of divorce. There's another rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, and he considered that uncleanness was anything in the wife that caused the husband displeasure. One was very strict about divorce. One was very easy and lenient about divorce. Which do you think was more popular in Jesus' day? Not the strict one. But the school of Hillel that granted divorce on very easy occasions, that was the majority thinking. And that permission of Deuteronomy 24.1, wrongly interpreted, therefore became an instrument of cruelty against wives. You see, therefore it gave a husband, under the wrong interpretation, not under God's interpretation, but under a, a wrong interpretation, it gave husbands the right to divorce their wives under anything that they could think of. Literally, if a wife burned her husband's breakfast, that was grounds for divorce. Another literal occasion, if a husband found someone who pleased him more than his wife, he could divorce his wife. Obviously, this was divorce for any reason on the whim, upon the wish of the husband. And as you can easily tell, it became an instrument of severe cruelty against wives. Now, Jesus tells us what this really means, right? Because he says, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality. By the way, that ancient Greek word immorality, sexual immorality, it, it translates the ancient Greek word pornea. The root meaning of that word is an old-fashioned word that isn't commonly used in the English language today, but most people still have a, an idea of what it means. It's the, it's the, it has the root idea of the word fornication. Fornication is simply sex outside of the bonds of marriage. It could refer to sex before marriage. It could refer to sex outside of marriage when somebody is already married. And so, what this covers, actually, Jesus is saying that divorce would be permitted if fornication or pornea was discovered in this way. If a husband were to find out that before their marriage, the wife was not sexually pure, that would give grounds for divorce in that culture. Because she would have been vowing at her marriage that she was a virgin. Again, this is a concept that does not translate easily into the much looser morals of modern culture. But in ancient culture, it was very meaningful. It would be a tremendous disgrace for a woman to be married who was not a virgin. And it would be, in addition to that, it would be a gross lie on her part. And so Jesus is saying if it was discovered before or if it was discovered after, that would be grounds for divorce. Now, the teaching of Jesus on marriage and divorce is further explained in Matthew chapter 19. And we'll talk about it more when we get to Matthew chapter 19, which I think will be about two years from now. 
But here we see the intent of Jesus. He's getting back to the intent of the law instead of allowing it to be used as an easy permission for divorce. His emphasis here is on the permanency of marriage and the wrong of unjustified divorce. And by the way, that went against the thinking in the Jewish culture of their day and in the Gentile culture of their day. Both of them had what we would consider easy divorce. And Jesus says, no, marriage is to be permanent. Marriage is to last, and it can be dissolved by divorce, but only under certain circumstances. Did you notice what he said there in verse 32? It says, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. What does Jesus mean by this? Jesus says simply this. An illegitimate divorce gives place to adultery because God doesn't recognize the divorce. And he sees the new relationship as adulterous or bigamous. Do you understand this? It is possible for a person to have a divorce that is recognized by the state, but is not recognized by God. And if that person goes on to marry someone else, God considers that relationship adultery because he sees them as still being married to their first partner. In other words, if I were, God forbid, to divorce my wife for an unbiblical reason, okay, unscriptural reason, we, we could go down to the government, to the courts and all that. We would get it all officially stamped. We're divorced. But in God's eyes, God says, I don't see you as divorced. When God looks down from heaven, he still sees a married couple. Therefore, if I were to go and marry another woman, in God's eyes, I'm committing adultery with that other woman because I'm still married to my wife. The first one. Because my divorce was not for scriptural reasons. And I need to add one more thing here. The Bible says that there are two biblical reasons for divorce. Here, what Jesus mentions here, both in this text and then later on in Matthew chapter 19, where he speaks about the permission of sexual immorality. The second one is the permission of the desertion by an unbelieving spouse. And Paul deals with that in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And in that, Paul very clearly gives that as a second permission for divorce, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit. Those are the two biblical grounds for divorce. Something we need to recognize, this concept, that a person can be divorced in the eyes of the state, but not in the eyes of God. Going on now to verse 33. Jesus is now going to speak to the law concerning oaths and swearing. He says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair black or white. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. 
Now, the Old Testament very plainly says that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But the scribes and the Pharisees had twisted this law. They had twisted this law to say, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, but you can swear any other kind of oath as much as you please. In other words, an ancient Pharisee would never swear to God but he would swear to heaven or to earth or God's throne or the rabbit that lives in the hole or the books on the shelf or the car in the garage. Well, of course, the Pharisee wouldn't. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> the chariot, you know, at the house, whatever you want to say. They permitted taking virtually every other name in a false oath. And Jesus reminds us again that God is part of every oath anyway. So he says, do not swear at all. And listen, your oath must be honored because God sees your oath. That's why you should let your yes be yes and your no be no. Having to swear or make oaths betrays the weakness of your word. It demonstrates that there's not enough weight in your own character to confirm your words. How much better it is to just say yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no. This is lost on many people today. This is uh, an interesting idea that Jesus puts forth that our own strength of character must demonstrate the truthfulness of what we say. When I was a little boy, you could always tell when the neighborhood kids were lying. You could always tell when they were lying because they would make more and more elaborate oaths. The, the most familiar one was, I swear on a stack of Bibles. Okay, Can you picture that? About 10 or 12 Bibles stacked up. That's a heavy oath, right? Because it's not just swearing on a Bible. No, 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 that's not enough. I swear on a stack of Bibles. Well, you knew that whenever a kid was saying that, he was lying, right? He's just trying to cover up his lie with some, with some clever oath. It doesn't matter. Now, some have taken this word of Jesus to be more than an emphasis on truth-telling and honesty and have taken it to be an absolute prohibition of all oaths. Certain people from Anabaptist traditions are famous for this, and they will refuse to swear any oath. If they are called in a court of law to swear, to testify that what they're going to say is true, they refuse, they refuse to swear any oath based upon this. I have to tell you that I think this is misguided. I think Jesus' emphasis here is on truth-telling and living an honest life. Because I would say that the Bible also shows us that oaths are permitted in certain circumstances as long as they're not abused and as long as they're not used as a cover for deception. That's what Jesus was really addressing. I find it especially compelling that Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 and Luke chapter 1 verse 73 tells us that God himself swears oaths. I find it interesting that in Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64, when Jesus was spoken to by the high priest uh, uh, in, in his trial before his crucifixion, he spoke under oath in a court. And we find repeatedly 
Romans 1 9, 2 Corinthians 1 23, Galatians 1 20, 2 Thessalonians 2 5, that the Apostle Paul himself made oaths. So I don't regard this as an absolute prohibition on swearing, but simply an emphasis on truth telling and honesty. Going on here now, verse 38, Jesus is going to interpret for us the law of retribution where he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now again, Jesus shares, this is what you heard them say of old, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, the Mosaic Law does teach the principle an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it's very interesting. Some people think that that's absolutely barbaric. How barbaric of the Bible to teach an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Friends, if you think that's barbaric, you don't understand it in its context. The context is very clear as it presents it in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24. It presents it as a limitation upon judges for penalties. Look, let's be honest. If you poke out my eye, my tendency is to want to poke out both your eyes. Right? If you knock out my tooth, my tendency is to want to see all your teeth out of your mouth. And that's why the law of Moses very wisely said, no, never more than an eye for an eye, never more than a tooth for a tooth. That's the whole idea of it there. But over time, religious teachers moved this command out of its proper sphere, which was a principle limiting retribution for civil government, and they put it in the wrong sphere as an obligation in personal relationships. Please understand the context in which this is in, in Exodus chapter 21, is in instructions to the judges of Israel. In other words, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not a law given to govern our personal relationships. It's a law given to govern judges and their administrations of a just society. Jesus says instead, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Here Jesus presents the fullness of the idea of an eye for an eye, and a tooth for two. He shows how it, how it brings the idea of limiting revenge. And it extends into the principle of accepting certain evils that are done against you. Listen, that's a heavy thing, right? I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. When a person insults us, that is, slaps us on the right cheek, we want to give back to them what they gave to us plus more. And Jesus said that we should patiently bear with such insults and offenses and not resist an evil person who insults us in this way. Instead, we should trust 
God to defend us. By the way, in contemporary rabbinic literature, it says that striking someone with the back of the hand, a severe insult was punishable by a heavy fine. And Jesus says you should just accept it. By the way, it's wrong to think here that Jesus means that a physical attack can never be resisted or defended against. In other words, if somebody were to start punching you and wanting to rob you, that you have no right to defend yourself. That's not the idea at all. When Jesus spoke of a slap on your right cheek, it was culturally understood as a deep insult and not as a physical attack. Jesus isn't saying that if somebody hits you across the right side of your head with a baseball bat, you should then allow them to uh, hit you across the left side of your head as well. No, instead... It's very interesting that Jesus chose the phrasing, your right cheek. Now, we would assume that that any such blow is made with the right hand. And if somebody hits your right cheek with their right hand, they have to use the back of their hand, which in that culture was very clearly intended as an insulting, dismissive slap. There's sort of a comic version of this, right, from, you know, a dignified Victorian culture, right, where the man takes off his gloves and takes his glove and slaps the man in his face with his glove. It's not intended primarily as a physical injury, right? It's a way to say, I insult you. Now, that's what Jesus is primarily talking about here. And again, Jesus is telling us, when somebody insults you deeply, bear it. Take it. It's wrong to think that Jesus means here that evil should never be resisted. Jesus demonstrated with his life that evil should be and must be resisted. When he turned tables in the temple, do you remember that? Was not Jesus physically resisting evil in a very demonstrative way? So Jesus is not telling us evil in the world should never be resisted. Nor is he telling us that there's no place for punishment or retribution in society. I think that honestly there's been great harm done in the thinking of many people where they take what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that is to govern personal relationships and they apply it to the institutions of society. Jesus does not speak here to the proper functions of government in restraining evil. If you want to know what the proper function of the government is in restraining evil, all you got to do is look at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. And it will tell you this, that the God-ordained role of government is to punish evil in society. That's what God intends government to do. God does not intend us to do it as private individuals. But he means for the government to do it. You know, I've often thought about this and explained it this way. What do you do if you wake up in the middle of the night and you hear downstairs, there's somebody in the house. You know, they're they're searching through the house looking for things. I'm being robbed. Well, you have every right. I think God would want you to go downstairs And if you found it safe to do so, to hit that thief over the head with a frying pan or a rolling pin or something like that, call the police. And when the police come, turn the man over to them. 
In the meantime, you should love the man. Cook him breakfast. Pray for him. Tell him about Jesus. And then let the police take him. And when he's on trial, you should testify against him. And when he's in jail, you should visit him in jail and love him and bring him nice gifts. On a personal level, you should love him. But you should also allow the institutions of government which God has ordained to deal with them rightly. Because you may think that the loving thing to do with a thief is to say, run away, thief, go, go. I don't, you know, I'm sorry, I forgive you, thief. Please, just leave. You, I will not resist you. You're an evil person, but I do not resist. You might think that that is the loving thing to do. But listen, in fact, it is not a loving thing to do, is it? Because you haven't loved your neighbor one bit. Because where does the thief go next? He goes to the neighbor's house and to the other neighbor's house and commits worse and worse crimes. So we need to make a clear distinction. Jesus speaks with all authority here to our personal relationships with other people. But there's been great misunderstanding, and I would say great harm done, very unclear thinking when these principles are applied to the institutions of society. And Jesus says, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. You know, under the law of Moses, the outer cloak was something that could not be taken from someone. It says very clearly in the Law of Moses. Now, this is because the outer cloak was often used to sleep in, right? That was your bed covering as well. And Jesus says, you can't take that away from somebody. You can't demand that away. That's what the Law of Moses said. But Jesus said, listen, if somebody takes your inner coat, give them your outer coat as well. This is radical discipleship. And then Jesus says something even more radical, if we could say that. Did you notice what he says? Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Do you know the context that Jesus is speaking from here? Judea was a land occupied by the Roman armies. And the Roman armies had the right to make any person under their occupation carry things for them. So here's a Roman soldier carrying a heavy pack and he sees a a Jew from Judea walking along the road and he has all the right under Roman law to say, hey, you filthy Jew, take this pack and carry it for me. You have to carry it for the next mile. And that's what the law said. He didn't have to carry it forever, but for one mile. Can you see that poor oppressed Jew carrying the pack cursing that Roman soldier under his breath, hating him with all of his heart and counting the steps, right? And until he reached that 1,000th step that was supposedly a mile, a 1,000 steps, once he had reached that point there, what would he do? Stop. He'd look at that Roman soldier with all the hatred he could muster in his eyes, and he would take off that pack and set it on the ground. I did what I had to do, and not one step more. You know, you can't help but feel abused in a situation like that, right? You know what Jesus tells us to do? He says, redeem the situation. Listen, Mr. Roman soldier, I don't like that you're making me carry your pack. I don't like that. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to choose to carry it. I'm going to choose to carry it for two miles. I like doing things out of my choice, right? 
I love to do something out of choosing to serve somebody. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to transform your attempt to manipulate and control me. I'm going to transform it into something that I choose. And I'm going to go literally the extra mile. This is what they did. That's what Jesus says to do. To transform it into a free choice of love. By the way, This is often how you should handle people who would try to control and manipulate you in your life. You can bring yourself out of their control, oftentimes by saying, no, 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 I'm not going to give you exactly what you wanted to, but out of my choice, I'm going to give you something even better. And that's what Jesus said to do there. Matter of fact, he says there in verse 42, give to him who asks of you. You know, the only limit to that kind of sacrifice is the limit that love itself will impose. The only reason for me not to give to somebody is because it's not loving to give to them. Now, sometimes people will come and ask you things, and for you to give it to them would be unloving for their life. You would be contributing to their life in a bad way. A man told me a very vivid example of this, and I've never forgotten. I've even done it a few times myself. He said that his habit, uh, he lived in Chicago at the time, and he would meet with a lot of people who would ask him for money, you know, poor people, homeless people, begging people on the street. And he would ask, they would be asked for money all the time. You know, hey, can you give me a dollar? Do you have 50 cents? This and that. And this is what the man used to do. He used to recognize that a lot of times, if you give money to a beggar like that, you're not helping that beggar one bit. That beggar is going to take that money and spend it on drugs or alcohol or something else that's just going to destroy your life. And and it makes you feel good. Oh, I feel so good. I gave a dollar to a beggar. But you haven't loved him at all. You've hurt him. And that's the limit that would be imposed here. And so this is what the man did. He started this practice. He said, well, listen, I'd be happy to give you a dollar. Do you mind if I pray over this dollar before I give it to you? Of course, the beggar would always say, yes, please go right ahead. He's excited to get a dollar. This is what the man would pray. He would say, Lord, I pray for this money, this dollar that I'm going to give to this beggar. I pray that if he's an honest man who just needs help, that you would bless this dollar and bring many more dollars to him. But I pray that if this man will use this money for drugs or alcohol or any other destructive habit in his life, I pray that you would curse this dollar and that it would be the last dollar that he gets for a long, long time. And then he would hold the dollar out to the guy. Well, as you would expect, some would take it. Some would say, no, thank you. I don't want that dollar. But it just illustrates the point. Listen, give to him who asks you. You say, well, what's the limit? If I give to everybody who asks me, then what's the limit? The limit is the limit that love itself imposes upon us. It isn't always loving to give a person what they ask for or to not resist them. I like what Paul says, very much on the same theme, later on in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, he says this, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Isn't that what you're doing with the Roman soldier tells you to carry the pack? That's evil what he did. No, I'm not going to be overcome by your evil, Mr. Roman soldier. I'm going to overcome your evil with good. 
Continuing on now, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what more do you do than others? Do not even tax collectors do so. You know, the Mosaic law commanded that you should love your neighbor. That's in the law of Moses, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Yet some teachers in the days of Jesus had added an opposite and evil misapplication. They said, you're obligated to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. What does Jesus say? No, love your enemies. Jesus reminds us that in the sense God means it, all people are our neighbors, even our enemies. And to truly fulfill this law, we must love our enemies. We should look to bless them, to do good, and to pray for our enemies, not only our friends. And you know what I love about the realism of the Bible? It acknowledges that you're going to have enemies. I remember one time on a college campus, I was going there and I saw a poster up. It said this. It said, enemies are friends that we choose to not understand. Let me say that again, just because it's so ridiculous, you might not have gotten it the first time. Enemies are friends that we choose not to understand. The idea was, you have no real enemies. All those enemies that you think you have, no, they're really friends. You just don't understand them. You know what the Bible says? No, you have enemies. They really don't like you. They really are out to get you. And you should love them. And you should bless them. And you should pray for them. By the way, doesn't this come to us as a very strong challenge right here? Can you think of an enemy in your life? If you have an enemy in your life, what are you doing to love them? What are you doing to bless them? Are you praying for them? If you were to pray for your enemies, I think God would change your heart towards them. And I mean pray for them, not the kind of prayers that you like to pray for your enemies. You know, like those prayers of David from the Psalms. Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. You know, not those kind of prayers. Lord, I really don't like this person and I know they don't like me. I don't get along with them at all and they're my enemy. But God, won't you bless them? Won't you pour out your goodness upon them? They don't deserve it, Lord, but neither do I. I want to love them, Lord. God will honor that. And did you notice what Jesus said about that? He said that if you do this, you'll be recognized that you are sons of your Father in heaven. When you do this, you are imitating God. God shows love towards his enemies. Hello, all of us. If God didn't love his enemies, we would all be in hell. And he demonstrates this by sending rain on the just and on the unjust. God just doesn't send the rain or the sunshine to, to just a few. He sends it to everybody, right? Well, there's a, a wicked, evil farmer over there. He's an ungodly man, and right next to him is a godly farmer. And you know what? The rain falls on both farms the same. And the sun shines on both farms the same. It's the same. God loves, and so should we love those who are our enemies.
Jesus said something very powerful there at the end. He said, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Right? Big compliment to you. You love those who love you. Whoop-de-doo. Who cares? (laughs) Anybody can do that. We should regard it as no matter of virtue if we merely return the love that is given to us. Now, we should remember that here Jesus is teaching the character of the citizens of his kingdom. And you know what he's telling you right there? When he says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? He's telling us that we should expect that the character of kingdom citizens should be different than the character of people in the world. You know, there's a lot of reasons why we should expect more from those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ than those who do not. They claim to have something that others do not have. They claim to be renewed. They claim to be repentant. They claim to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. And they do, in fact, have something that other people do not have. They have a power that others do not have. They can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. They have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. And they have a better future than the others do. Yes, more should be expected of followers of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know, if Jesus... Excuse me, let me take that back. If a man could live the way that Jesus told us to in this chapter, he'd be perfect, wouldn't he? If you or I could really do this, if we could take just what we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, and if we could really live this, then we would never hate, we would never slander, we would never speak evil of another person. We would never lust in our heart or our mind, and we'd never covet anything. We'd never make a false oath, and we'd always be completely truthful. We would let God defend our personal rights and we'd never take it upon ourselves to defend those rights. And we would always love our neighbors and even our enemies. Anybody here do all that? If you did, you would be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You see, if a man could keep what Jesus said here, he truly would have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And didn't Jesus say that back at verse 20 of this very same chapter? That unless you have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. But there's only one man who ever lived like this, right? There was only one man who lived this with his life in perfection, and that was Jesus Christ himself. So what about us? Are we therefore left out of the kingdom of God? You see, what I want you to see is that in this section, Jesus was not primarily seeking to show you what God requires you of your daily Christian life. It shows you God's pattern, of course. True, Jesus has revealed to us God's ultimate standard, and we've got to take it to heart. But Jesus' primary intent was to say this. 
If you want to be righteous by the law, this is what you have to do. You have to keep the whole law, internal and external. You have to be perfect. Do you want to be made righteous by the law? Okay, then no more of this, well, I just never killed nobody. No, you've hated in your heart. You want to be made righteous by the law? No more can you just say, well, I never commit adultery. No, there's lust in your heart. Do you want to be made righteous by the law? No more can you say, well, I love my neighbor because you hate your enemy. Jesus is saying, if you want to be made righteous by the law, this is the standard. And we read it, and what do we say? I can't do this. And you know what? You can't. Jesus has demonstrated that we need a righteousness that is apart from the law. Just like Paul said it in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So we understand this? When Jesus is saying, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect, he's telling us what God's standard is. And if you hope to get to heaven by your own righteousness, then you just read through this Sermon on the Mount one more time. Just this fifth chapter of it. And you tell me how you measure up in your obedience to the law. Do you see what Jesus was doing in this great sermon? He was really accomplishing several brilliant things at once thus far. Number one, he was showing them, you haven't understood the Bible well. Your teachers have not served you well. Let me tell you what the Bible really commands. Secondly, he was telling them how to really live a life that was more pleasing to God in their actions, right? So number one, how to interpret the Bible correctly. Number two, how to serve God, how to honor God more fully in your life. But number three, and most importantly, how to see that you are unable to be righteous by what you do. You must have a living relationship with Jesus Christ and trust in him and make him your righteousness. Now, what does that mean? That, that, that we tear up? The, oh, good, I know I'm a sinner. Now I don't have to keep this Sermon on the Mount stuff. No, no, a thousand times no, because it shows us God's heart. It shows us God's standard. But what it does not show us is the path for getting to heaven. The path for getting to heaven is only through Jesus Christ. This is the work that he wants to do in those who are following him to heaven, whom he is taking to heaven because of his righteousness. Well, we leave it off there for tonight, and we'll pick it up next time we're together at chapter 6 and continue on in this very, very exciting passage where Jesus now in the next section is going to talk to us more about the kind of religious observance that we should have. So let's pray. Lord, um, we recognize that the perfection of keeping the law as explained in the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, it's beyond us. Even if all the past were wiped away and we only started counting from now on, we'd still be unable to keep it, Lord. 
We are lawbreakers in the past, in the present, and Lord, in the future as well. And that's why, Lord, we're so grateful that we can have a righteousness that is given to us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we look to Jesus, who kept the law in its perfection, who not only never murdered in deed, he never murdered in heart, who not only never committed adultery in the act, but Lord, also he never committed adultery in the heart, and who always not only loved his neighbor, but he loved his enemies as well. Oh, Jesus, be our righteousness. And you, being our righteousness, guide us to be more like you. Conform us into your image. We want to be like this. We want to be kingdom citizens, but not as a way to achieve heaven. But Lord, once the gift of eternal life has been graciously given to us, Lord, now we want to live as kingdom citizens. Help us to do so for your glory and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.